Let's pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. My Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Good morning. It's great to be with you today. Uh, my name's Lawson. I'm the lead pastor here at City Reach Marion. As we look at this text, uh, we see a couple of things going on. We see Jesus diagnosing some spiritual problems that are going on in a few different people. And then we see him applying some treatment too. And so uh, I think it's helpful for us to look at the text in that way. Firstly, the diagnosis of the spiritual problem. And then secondly, we're going to look at the treatment that Jesus applies. So what is the diagnosis? Well, firstly, in verses uh, 15 and 16, we see that there's a demon who's oppressing uh, this little boy. A desperate father comes to Jesus in a desperate situation. His son is afflicted by some spiritual force. It gives him seizures. But it's worse than that because he suffers terribly, the text says. He often falls into the fire and often into water. The word uh, for seizures here in the original language actually is translated directly into English as moonstruck. That's a really unusual term. It's because in the ancient uh, world, in the ancient Greek world, they used to think that mental illness and neurological disorders were caused by the moonlight. And so they thought that someone was moonstruck if they had an unexplainable neurological disease or mental illness. Of course, we know better today, but there was a bit of confusion as to what the correct diagnosis was. But as the father brings his son to Jesus, we see that there's more going on. It's not just that he has seizures and he suffers terribly. It's that he often gets thrown into the fire. He gets often thrown into the water. There's more going on here. In the, one of the other gospel accounts, people suspect that it's actually demonic act, he suspects it's demonic activity that's going on. And Jesus confirms that Satan is in fact behind what's going on here. So as we look to, what, to make a correct diagnosis, we must ask ourselves the question, in our own lives, so moving from the text now to the present, do we have a situation in our life which has the marks of demonic activity? So we're going beyond the normal. We're saying you know, it's not just that he has seizures and suffers terribly, but he gets thrown into the water, gets thrown into the fire. It's unusual in nature. Of course, for the Christian person, we understand the Bible tells us that there is far more going on behind the scenes than we'd like to admit. In uh, modern-day Australian culture, we're a bit sub-spiritual. That is, we don't really believe in other things going on behind the scenes that much in a spiritual realm. Even in Christian circles, sometimes we dismiss that there's other things going on spiritually. But that's not the Bible's view. The Bible has a very clear view that there is a spiritual war going on consistently and constantly against God's people. We see this, uh, just jumping to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, it says this, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. 
So the Bible would say, yes, there's always something going on behind the scenes. There's always a spiritual reality behind the symptoms that present themselves. 1 Peter 5 verse 8 puts it this way, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. That is, the devil waits for opportunities to get at Christian people. So whether you're a Christian or not here, you may have suspected that there's more going on. And the Bible brings that out into the open and says, yes, there is more going on. Firstly, it's happening all the time. And secondly, Satan is looking for particular opportunities to bring trouble, distress and strife into your life and to tear you away from following Jesus. This is important that we make a correct diagnosis. We must also realize that the methods of the enemy vary. That is, and we see this throughout the Gospels, that many instances of physical disabilities are attributed to Satan. We see that Peter's ongoing unbelief is attributed to Satan. We see this in Matthew chapter 16. So even not trusting in Jesus is attributed to Satan. I wonder if we think that way. I wonder if that's the first thing that comes to your mind when you realize, oh, I haven't been really trusting in Jesus with my life, that that isn't a satanic attack upon you. We see that Judas was entered into by Satan to betray Jesus. We see in the book of Acts that Satan filled the hearts of Ananias and Sapphira to lie about their giving, tempted them to lie We see that Satan harasses God's people seeking to discourage them through various means. We see that particularly in the life of Paul. We also see that Satan tempts us with lust or sexual immorality. I mean, this is an onslaught. This is an absolute onslaught from every different direction against God's people. This is the nature of the spiritual world. This is the diagnosis that the Bible gives us. And so we must realise something then, that if we don't get the diagnosis right, we cannot treat the problem correctly. That is, when there's a spiritual war going on and you don't recognise it, you have no means to deal with the reality of it. A good example is, let's say you get a headache and you decide that you need to go to the doctor. Now, it's a serious kind of headache It's more of a migraine and, you know, you probably do need a scan on your brain to see whether something serious and more sinister is going on. But imagine the doctor just ignores it, ignores all the evidence pointing to something more sinister and just prescribes you Panadol. You would be quite angry and upset a few months later if you found out that you had a brain tumour. The problem with an incorrect diagnosis is that you cannot treat the cause of the issue. This is very dangerous to a Christian's faith and to their eternity. And it's very dangerous for someone, and if you're here and you don't hold a Christian faith, you're a bit unsure about where you're at with these things. It's very dangerous for you to assume that these things don't matter. Let's consider the stakes for a minute. If they do matter, 
They're of eternal importance. If they don't matter, well, it doesn't really matter anyway. So you should then investigate logically whether they do matter. Because if it does have eternal significance, then you should want a correct diagnosis. So how do we make a correct diagnosis? Well, if you look carefully in your Bible, this is very interesting, you will notice that there's a verse 20, and then there's a verse 22, but there's no verse 21. Did anyone pick that up? A couple of nods. Why is there no verse 21? Well, the Bible scholars amongst us will tell you there's a textual variant, and someone added in what was in Mark's Gospel, Uh, that says this kind can only be cast out through prayer and fasting. So in Mark's account, uh, he includes what Jesus said, that this particular kind of demon can only be cast out through prayer and fasting. That is, there's a particular sort of demonic activity that you cannot work out what's going on, you can't treat without prayer and fasting, you cannot work it out, you cannot treat it unless you turn to Jesus. That is, it's something that persists when everything else fails to treat it. We find that in the situation of this father and his son. He says in verse 15, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and suffers terribly, for he often falls into fire and often into water. Verse 16, I want you to catch this closely. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. So this man has a son who's oppressed by a demon. Some people have said he's moonstruck. You know, it's a neurological disorder or something caused by the moon. Of course, we know that's rubbish. He suspects there's a demon. But others have failed to be able to treat him properly. Even Jesus' own disciples haven't been able to treat him properly. There's more going on here. There's more going on here and this is the kind of issue that I think we might be facing in many of our own lives. When everything we throw at an issue, we just can't solve it. Now whether it is our own sexual immorality, you know, we know that we shouldn't be acting this way or living this way or thinking these things and yet we can't seem to control it. Whether it is our concern for lying, whether we are actually a liar. We're lying to ourselves, we're lying to other people, we've got ourselves so deep into lies that we can't get out of them. And so, but we have no way out. We might have seen a psychologist and that's not helping. We might have just a constant sense of doubt and unbelief in our lives. We, We want to live like a Christian. We want to believe that the Bible's true. We want to put it into practice. And yet we can't. We've tried everything. We've, we've gone to people for help. And it seems that it still will not work. This textual variant, the missing verse 21, which we get from Mark's Gospel, is that this particular kind of demon can only be cast out through prayer and fasting. That is, we cannot diagnose nor treat the issue without seeking Jesus, his word and his treatment for it. So it is critical to get a correct diagnosis. But we must also realise that this is a common diagnosis. So we see this in verse 17. 
And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to bear with you? How long am I to bear with you? That is, after the desperate father of this boy who's oppressed by a demon brings him to Jesus, Jesus speaks to everyone and says, you also have a spiritual problem here. He's diagnosing another spiritual problem as well as the demon in this boy. He's saying that the current generation that he's speaking to are faithless. They're twisted in their trust of God's word. They're crooked. They're off-center. They've been misled. They see Jesus do things, which we've got, you know, 17 chapters so far of Jesus doing amazing miracles. And yet they don't believe. It's interesting because some of us think that if only we saw Jesus do a miracle, if only I saw Jesus like affect my particular problem, my particular issue, then I believe. And yet here we have people who do see Jesus do particular miracles and yet they still don't believe. Makes us realize that the, the reasons that we give aren't always accurate. There's something deeper going on. And we can continue in this ignorance of Jesus for our whole lives. We can keep ignoring him for whenever and ever, but we can never say that we're excused. Some people think that if only I live a good life, then even if I ignore God my whole life, then he will still accept me. Well, that's a totally unbiblical idea. Jesus never says that. In fact, the Bible says the opposite. He says we've got this whole world around us that reveals both a, a physical nature that's been created by God and a spiritual nature behind it. And so we are without excuse, Romans 1 tells us. In fact, the root issue then is not a lack of evidence for us, but rather our sin of unbelief. If it's obvious based upon the world around us, if it's obvious based upon the spiritual nature, which sometimes we hide from, then we have no excuse, but we must admit that we too have a problem with the sin of unbelief. We see here that Jesus gets frustrated with him. He says, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? They've seen Jesus do miracles, but Jesus, more than that, he's taught them specifically what he's doing, yet they don't understand. And I would say that that's a similar problem that we have today. Many people consistently hear sermons, read the Bible, and yet don't believe it. That is, we might have been to church for much of our lives. We might have heard someone speaking like I am to us for much of our lives. And yet we've not really responded. We haven't done anything with it. Seems to have gone in one ear and out the other without changing us internally. Where's the problem? Is the problem with what Jesus is saying? Or is the problem with us ourselves? We must have a correct diagnosis. This is a common problem. You can imagine, now let me take you back to the uh, idea of going to a doctor to get a diagnosis for a headache. Let's say that you went to get your diagnosis. You come with a presenting symptom of a headache. The doctor does a number of tests on you, works out that there's probably something more going on here, gets a scan. The scan proves that there is, in fact, a tumour. Now they take a biopsy. Seems to be quite serious. You can imagine at that point, if you get the diagnosis, 
and then you just ignore it. It's like, oh, well, I'll be fine. Just carry on as normal. That would be, compl- that would be a terrible thing to do. And people still do that, just pretending as if nothing had happened. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying is going on here when he's bearing with people as he teaches them, as he gives them a correct diagnosis. They ignore him. They ignore the seriousness of the issue. And we see that if you continue to ignore Jesus, well, you may well be consumed by your own unbelief. That is, if we persist down a path of ignoring what Jesus has said, ignoring God's word, ignoring all the evidence around us, then we may keep going further and deeper into that same spiritual position of unbelief and ignorance of God and be stuck there and hardened forever. It's not a good look. So we've looked at a correct diagnosis, a common diagnosis, but this, Jesus goes even further to say that it's a close diagnosis. That is, Jesus speaks to his disciples when he gets them on their own. You see, the disciples are embarrassed, it seems, because they tried to cast out the demon in this boy. They sort of had a correct diagnosis, but they couldn't do it. They didn't have the spiritual power in and of themselves to affect this particular issue. And so, when they get Jesus on their own, they ask Jesus, verse 19, they asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? Jesus diagnoses another spiritual problem. That is, within his own people. What does he say? Because of your little faith. You know, Jesus has said this, uh, this has been five times so far. This is the last time it'll be said in the book of Matthew, but five times it's come through. Quick survey of those moments. We see this in Matthew 6, verse 30, when Jesus is teaching the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, when you don't trust God's provision for your material things, that is your food, finances, clothing, housing, that kind of thing, and it produces anxiety in your life, that is because, what? You have little faith. Matthew 8, 26, when there's a big storm going on and Jesus is sleeping on the boat, and Jesus tells them that they have little faith because they don't trust that Jesus is with them and that he will look after them. Matthew 14, when Peter goes out to walk on water, He trusts Jesus for a minute, but then he wavers and falls in. Jesus, of course, says again that there is little faith present there. We see this earlier in Matthew chapter 16, when Jesus tells his disciples that they have little faith because they don't recognize the danger of false teaching. And now here in Matthew 17, we see when your faith is not placed in Jesus himself, but somewhere else, you miss spiritual problems that need his pure attention. Again, that is diagnosed as having little faith. So we are all susceptible. I mean, if Jesus' own disciples who are with him, they've actually professed faith. So they do believe in him, yet they get it wrong consistently, like I suspect we get it wrong consistently. That we often have little faith when it comes to Jesus. We're often not bringing our problems directly to him, but we're kind of dancing around them. We're making excuses. We're sub-spiritualizing things like the culture that we live in, saying, oh, I just you know, I must not be eating right, or you know, I must be working too hard at the moment, or you know, I'm just feeling off constantly, rather than seeing that there may well be a 
spiritual and is a spiritual reality behind our presenting symptoms. A man called Kerry Packer identified this. This is the, fa- the late father of James Packer. Kerry Packer was the wealthiest man in Australia for a very long time, very famous, very wealthy. A son of uh, Frank Packer, who was also a wealthy man. And uh, a journalist, Peter Little, Philip Little, sorry, went and uh, sat down with Kerry Packer after um, they'd done a deal uh, to uh, work out uh, to provide some money for a movie. And they were sitting at a restaurant at about 3am and Kerry Packer says to this, uh, this man, this journalist, he says, well, what's a black hole? Just sort of out of nowhere and the journalist starts describing, you know, Stephen Hawking's uh, description of a black hole and going into detail. And then after a little while of the explanation of what a black hole is, Kerry Packer says, oh, I've, got a, I've got a big black hole in my heart. You see, Kerry Packer, not a Christian man, had worked out that there is a spiritual problem. See, he was even able to diagnose it, that he had a big black hole in his heart. Now, let's look at the evidence. He is a very wealthy man, a very powerful man, has all the things that many of us dream of, you know, no financial pressure, everything that you could ever desire materially, and yet it's not enough. It's not enough. He's still consumed by his abusive father. He's still consumed by not having enough that he realises there's a big black hole in his heart. Sometimes the curtains are pulled back and we realise that there's a big black hole in our heart. But you can't leave it there. The diagnosis is not enough. You must turn to the great physician and realise that only he can bring healing to the big black hole in your heart. This is whether you're a believing person or a person who hasn't yet gripped, been grasped by Christianity yet. You're still working things out. This big black hole in your heart only Jesus can deal with. So I've looked at the diagnosis Now we turn to the treatment. The first thing I want to say about the treatment is that you shouldn't bypass Jesus to solve your spiritual problems. You shouldn't bypass Jesus to solve your spiritual problems. That is, let's go back to the context of uh, our passage again. Jesus has this man uh, bring his son to him and he says the disciples have failed to heal him. They haven't been able to do it. Jesus uh, condemns them and says, look, you've got it all wrong. You should have brought him directly to me. That's why Jesus is calling out their little faith. Because they tried to sort it out themselves when they should have gone directly to Jesus. We, We have this example in our lives all the time. When we think that the spiritual answer is the last thing that we should approach. That is, when there's issues going in our life, things that we really can't seem to solve, there seems to be no answer. We've tried, you know, we've tried other avenues that haven't worked. Right at the end of the line, we think, oh, I need to pray. Maybe prayer will work. Maybe prayer will work. But we didn't ask him first. 
You see, the disciples in this text tried to sort it out themselves. They didn't wait for Jesus. They took matters into their own hands to solve the problem. Why? But let me ask you for a second, because it's a little bit confusing here if we look at it for a moment. Because early in the book of Matthew, we see that Jesus' disciples have been given power and authority to cast out demons and to heal people. So they've done it before. Jesus' disciples have had enough spiritual power and authority to deal with particular kinds of issues before. And yet, for some reason, this time they can't do it. We see, of course, in the textual variant, the missing verse 21 that's actually in Mark's gospel, that it's this kind of demon that can only be cast out through prayer and fasting. It's this kind that only Jesus can deal with. Because, of course, what is prayer other than asking Jesus for help? And that's what they should have done. And that's what we should do as well. Because there are some things that God places and allows in our lives that we will not solve apart from him. I want you to notice this about your own life. Maybe there's something that you haven't been able to get over. Maybe there's just one thing, that, one issue that just won't let you go. You can't find joy in this particular issue because God himself is waiting for you to come to him personally. You see, this kind of demon, it feeds on unbelief. It loves to be around unbelief. Because no one's going to take it to Jesus. This kind of demon doesn't respond to ordinary measures. You know, the, the boy's father, I'm sure, tried lots of things. He probably had it diagnosed by physicians. They couldn't work it out. Jesus' disciples couldn't work it out. This kind of demon only Jesus can cast out. And we can only have Jesus deal with this kind of issue, this kind of demon in our own lives, if we bring it to Jesus in prayer. And so we see that the desperate father is actually the one doing the right thing, which is fascinating. So we must recognize that when nothing else works, that Jesus may be exposing an underlying issue in us, unbelief, so that we will rely on him alone. So why couldn't they cast out the demon? Because of their little faith because they didn't bring it straight to Jesus. They didn't trust that Jesus alone could do it. And so they tried to work it out themselves. That's their little faith. I wonder, I wonder if the reason why we're still oppressed by particular issues is because we've never really brought it to Jesus proper. We've kind of thought we have, or we've kind of just been leaning on a few other ideas rather than going, Jesus, you're the only one that can do it. And Jesus is in this process in our lives of not allowing other things to work so that we'll only rely on him. You see, Jesus has no issue casting out the demon, does he? Of course, the, the desperate father brings his son to Jesus. And what does it say in verse 18? Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and the boy was healed Instantly, instantly, straight away. Isn't that different? On the one hand, we've got the, the father trying to sort it out himself, then he brings it to the disciples. None of that works, and yet Jesus gets involved, and instantly, 
without fail, without hesitation, the problem is dealt with. Let me ask you, have you really brought your spiritual issues to Jesus? Because perhaps the reason why you haven't yet got an answer, perhaps the reason why you can't get over this particular issue is because Jesus wants to deal with your unbelief. That's the big thing going on underneath. That's what he wants to deal with for you. I want you to notice that as I've, I've said, I don't want you to bypass Jesus to get to your spiritual problems. That Jesus doesn't bypass to get to your spiritual problems either. That is, he calls you to himself to deal with issues that only he can handle. Jesus is calling you to turn to him, to call upon him alone to deal with this particular spiritual issue that you have. As we look to the treatment, I want you to see the mercy of Jesus. We see this brought up in verse 15 by the desperate father. Lord, have mercy on my son. Have mercy. This mercy of Jesus is expressed quite powerfully because now they're headed towards the cross in the book of Matthew. We see that Jesus calls out a faithless and twisted generation of people who they see him do miracles. They hear his teaching and making a correct diagnosis. They still don't respond. And what does Jesus do? In his mercy, he doesn't fail them. But he continues on his journey to the cross. He doesn't dismiss an unbelieving people. He says, even though you do not believe, I will die for you so that you may find freedom. We see here his commitment to humanity in saving us from unbelief. You know there's only one sin that will keep you out of heaven? It's unbelief. That's what the Bible describes as grieving the Holy Spirit, blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Unbelief. That's the one sin that will keep you out of heaven. And Jesus is willing to go to the cross, to suffer on the sake of others, so that they might gain entry into this kingdom, though they do not yet believe. That shows the great mercy of Jesus. And we see it expressed later in the book of Romans, that whilst we were still sinners, that Jesus would die for us. We see the grace of Jesus that is willing to pluck people out of unbelief, totally according to his mercy. And we see in the text that the only person that gets it is the father that's so desperate he's given up on everything else. He's so desperate that he's given up on going to the disciples, he's given up on the other physicians. Now he is recognized, he's actually recognize that there's a spiritual problem underneath and yet he's in his desperation he says Jesus have mercy Lord have mercy and that needs to be our voice as well Lord have mercy because you are a merciful God though the father hadn't seen it yet by faith he believed it by faith He trusted that Jesus was someone of mercy and so he called to him for it. He called 
upon Jesus for his mercy. And we have much more evidence at our disposal. We know of the cross. We know of the resurrection. We know that he is a merciful God and is willing to go to the uttermost for us. He's willing to go to that place to save you from unbelief. And so his mercy calls to us. I want you to see his mercy that even when his disciples failed him because of their unbelief, that Jesus would not fail them. You see, when Jesus was in the garden of Gethsemane and the, uh, the chief priest brought a few Roman soldiers to arrest Jesus, all of his disciples ran away in fear. They all abandoned him. A little bit later, we find Peter denies Jesus three times when questioned as to whether he knew him or not. And yet we see Jesus' mercy that even though in their unbelief they would abandon him at the most critical moment, that Jesus would not abandon them. He didn't say, well, that's it. I'm done with humanity. Even my closest disciples have failed me. No. Jesus would not abandon them to sin, Satan and death. But he would go to the cross. He would continue to be alone, whipped, struck up onto a cross to pay for their sin of unbelief, to die the death that they should have died and to rise from the dead and to give them the gift of new and eternal life. That is his mercy, that if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. We must have the treatment and come to the one who will never leave us nor forsake us. And finally, I want to say to you that we need to go to Jesus directly. So we don't bypass we see his mercy revealed to a faithless generation, to even his closest people. Even if you've messed up your life, even if you've messed up the great opportunities that you've had, he will remain faithful. He can pluck you out of your unbelief. We see that the text with this great example of the desperate father reminds us to go to Jesus directly. We should see the love in the text that the father has for his son. This desperate father brings his son to Jesus because he loves his son so much that he'll do anything. He's so desperate. He's so desperate that everyone else has failed him that he finally gets to Jesus. In his desperation, in his great love for his son, he brings him to Jesus to be healed. Of course, this tells us something which is good for us to know is that one of the greatest acts of love is to bring those that we love to Jesus. To bring those that we love to Jesus. But I want to reverse this for a minute and see the love of God the Father for the world, that he would give his only son for us. The great love of God is magnified in, we see a desperate father bringing his son to Jesus and we see a great and merciful father giving Jesus his son for this desperate father and his boy. 
You see, the greatest act of love that the world has ever seen is that the only Son of God would come to heal people harassed by Satan and gripped by unbelief. That Jesus would take their evil, not his own, but theirs, upon himself and take it to a cross to pay its penalty, to extinguish its power so that he alone could raise them from dead through their faith. That as Jesus rose from the dead, so their faith could rise out of unbelief. I want you to see the faith of a mustard seed in the desperate father that took him to Jesus. Jesus has this really interesting parable in verse 20. I'm going to read it out for you. He said to them, Because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, that's small, isn't it? You will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. What is faith the size of a mustard seed? I mean, it's incredibly small. If you ever got a jar of seeded mustard out and got one of the seeds, I mean, you wouldn't be able to see it really from here, from where you're sitting. I could see it because I'm so close to it. It's so small. What is Jesus saying here? What is Jesus saying here? Well, I think he's making a comparison. We have the disciples and the crowd who've seen Jesus do these incredible miracles. They've heard him teach. They've heard the very words of God in their own presence. So they've got all this information and yet they still haven't believed. And yet we have this desperate father who has very little information. A mustard seed of information. And yet he is willing to reach out and grab hold of the one person who can help him. That tells us that faith is proportional to the one you direct it to. Let me give another example. Imagine you fall off a cliff, but you reach out and grab a branch. There's a branch there. Now, you're a bit worried about whether this branch will actually hold you up or not. Now, whether you'll fall down to your death because you're gripping this branch. But if you don't hold the branch, of course, you will definitely fall. And so there's a gap between your choice of whether you grip the branch or you let go of the branch. You can see the branch there. You can look and decide whether it's strong enough and make all the calculations in your head. But unless you grip and hold on to the branch as you're falling off, you won't be saved. But if for all your worth, you can't, you're not really sure whether this branch will be able to take your weight, whether this branch will be strong enough to hold you, but you still grab it even with a mustard seed worth of faith, this branch will save you. If, though you've made all the calculations, you've decided, well, maybe this branch will save me, but you never reach out and grab it, well, it's not going to do anything, is it? And this is what Jesus is talking about. Even a mustard seed, even the smallest amount of faith directed at him, can say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. Of course, mountain is a metaphor for the big spiritual problems in your life. 
If you really come to Jesus, if you truly turn to him, he has the power. He has the mercy. He has the will to deal with your particular problem. And he has brought you to that place so that you might just have a mustard seed, but it would be directed appropriately to him. He's trying to tear down and successfully tearing down all the other faith structures that you had and just leaving the one remaining, which is the most important one, the one that is directed to him. And so sometimes, sometimes, and this is uh, an encouragement for you, sometimes we need a desperate situation in our lives to produce a mustard seed of true faith so that we will find our hope in Jesus alone. And so let me encourage you, as you sit in that place where you wonder and you consider the diagnosis, you consider whether your particular thing that you face, your spiritual struggle, is something that only Jesus can handle, I encourage you, turn to him. Because he alone has the power. He alone has the mercy. And he has proved it for us on his great and wondrous cross. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we give you great thanks. uh, As you have taught us today to lean upon you alone. To find our hope in you to turn to you even with a small mustard seed worth of faith and find you deliver us from evil. We trust your word, we trust your power and we pray that today we would find freedom in the name of Jesus. And we give you thanks in his name. Amen.